to the Military Psychology Podcast from the American Psychological Association's Division 19. My name is Dr. Katie McNamara, and I have the pleasure of guest hosting a number of episodes in our diversity series. We'll be speaking with LGBT service members, researchers, and policymakers to educate military behavioral health providers on the unique considerations involved in caring for this population. As a new guest host, you may be wondering, well, who the heck is she? I'm a PhD level licensed clinical social worker, and I've been a behavioral health provider in the Air Force for nine years. As always, my opinions are mine, all mine, and I don't speak for the Air Force or the Department of Defense. I'm an openly and proudly bisexual woman, and my pronouns are she, her. I wrote my dissertation on the outness of LGBT service members which I will talk to you about for hours and hours if you ever want me to. Now, on to our guest for today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jillian Shippard, a clinical research psychologist at the Women's Health Sciences Division of the National Center for PTSD at VA Boston Healthcare System and a professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine. In addition, Dr. Shippard serves as the director for the LGBT Health Program at the Veterans Health Administration in Washington, D.C., a job she shares with Dr. Michael Koth. In this role, Dr. Shippard oversees policy, provider education programs, and clinical services to support personalized, proactive, patient-driven healthcare for LGBT veterans. All right, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shippard. I am so grateful that you're here. I'm wondering if you can orient us to where in the world you are. How's your day going? Yeah. Hi. I'm very happy to be here. I am located in Boston, Massachusetts. And after a long, wet weekend, we now have beautiful weather. So I'm very excited about that. (laughs) Oh, I'm happy to hear that. So we have never met face-to-face. I mean, maybe once at a conference or something, but um, we just finished writing a chapter together on LGBT military mental health, which was a great experience. And you are a very prolific writer in this field. I'm wondering if you can tell us, start us off with telling us what got you interested in LGBT service member well-being. Yeah. Well, there are lots of things. First, being bisexual myself, I'm a member of the LGBTQ plus community. So, you know, I think about these issues on a fairly regular basis. Mm-hmm. And I started at the VA a little over 20 years ago. And so, of course, the military culture is completely relevant for folks who are working at the VA or at, in the Veterans Health Administration in particular, which is where I work. Because the culture of the VA, in a lot of ways, is a carryover from the military culture. Mm -hmm. And when I first started 20 years ago, we were in a staff meeting and someone said, hey, we have about a dozen transgender women in our clinic, in our women's clinic right now. Does somebody want to start a support group? Mm. (laughs) And honestly, that's what launched this whole line of research. And not just research, but advocacy as well. I became interested in the unique challenges that transgender and gender diverse veterans face on a systems level Mm. and trying to address some of that through policy, but also, you know, in the therapy room. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. And so 
I'm very interested in what we can do to be more affirming. Mm -hmm. So, So, yeah, lots of reasons to be interested. (laughs) Yes. And it sounds like it started really because there was a need that somebody brought Mm -hmm. up and then you filled that need. Yeah, I don't know that I filled that need, but I have been trying to fill that need. There's lots of work to be done. But yeah, definitely came out of a need in the community. For yes. Sure. And speaking of all the work that we've done and that there is to be done. So to be clear, of course, VA, VHA is different from the Department of Defense. I know a lot of our listeners yeah. are military behavioral health folks who serve active duty. And yeah, I really wanted to have you on because the VHA is way ahead of the DOD in terms of, and I I think that that's not controversial at all. You you guys are just way ahead of us in terms of policy and LGBT inclusive stance. And I think that we have a lot to learn from you. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) Um, You know, I think there have been ebbs and flows in both systems. So for folks who work with military personnel, but who are not involved in the DOD themselves, but who are interested in military psychology and behavioral health, I just want to be totally transparent and say the Department of Defense is a separate federal system from the VA. Those are two separate organizations. But of course, the VA primarily serves veterans. So the culture of DOD comes over to the VA. And within VA, there are three branches. So there's the healthcare branch, which is where I am. And so I deliver healthcare. I work on policies within healthcare and education within healthcare. But there is also a VA benefits branch and a VA cemetery branch. And I think folks sometimes get a little lost in all the weeds of that, but I just thought it would be easier just to lay it out like that. Yes. Thank you for laying that out. Me included. I mean, shoot, I did my social work internship at a VA and I still never really quite understood the differences there. So thank you for explaining Mm. that. Um, Sure. I do want to give you some space to just share with us all of the cool things that VHA has been and will begin doing in terms of LGBT inclusivity, because there's a lot. Yeah. Well, and hopefully more to come. You know, you had said that you felt like maybe the VA was further ahead than the DOD. And I think that that is a common perception because the VA never had Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was a DOD policy from 1993 to 2011, which essentially said, you know, you can have a sexual orientation other than straight or heterosexual, but just don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't bring it up. Don't bring your spouse to events. Don't, you know, don't let us know what's happening in your life. And and then you're welcome to serve. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Of course, that policy didn't go so great. About 14,000 active duty military members were, were drummed out due to their sexual orientation. You know, interestingly, the don't ask, don't tell policy never discharged anybody for asking, you mm. know, somebody's sexual orientation. The, the folks who got drummed out were just the folks who had minoritized sexual orientations, which mm, good point. is sort of interesting. And so VA never had a don't ask, don't tell policy. 
And so I know one of the things that people, one of the things that veterans really worry a lot about is that they fear if they talk to their healthcare providers about their sexual orientation or their gender identity, that they might lose their benefits. And Mm. when I say lose their benefits, I mean service-connected disability payments through the benefits branch of the VA or home loans through the benefits branch or education benefits through that branch. And I want to be completely clear that that can't happen and that we have policies that explicitly prohibit that from happening. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to let folks know it's safe to come out to your healthcare providers, mm-hmm. that your sexual orientation and your gender identity, everybody has one. Everybody has a sexual orientation. Everybody has a gender mm-hmm. identity. And these are important variables in your healthcare mm-hmm. uh, because folks who come from minoritized identities really do, are at risk for certain health conditions. And being able to have an open and honest conversation with your healthcare provider is really essential. So I want to really footstop what you just said about your sexual and gender identity being important variables in the trajectory of your health. Because I think Mm -hmm. sometimes we can make the misunderstanding, oh, I don't care who you like to get into bed with. And then that's (laughs) all that that is. You know, I still hear that to this day, maybe in some, you know, Facebook threads. I shouldn't be reading Mm -hmm. the comments. You know, I still I still see that. So can you please. So I know (laughs) that I asked us what are some of the great things that VHA is doing and we'll get there. But I would like for you to maybe expand a little bit upon why this demographic information is vital for us to know as providers. Yeah. So here's what I often hear from very well-intentioned healthcare providers who work outside of the VA. They say things like, if someone's sexual orientation or gender identity is relevant to their health, that person, that patient that I'm treating will bring that up in their mm. healthcare. I don't need to ask about sexual orientation or gender identity because if it's related to the, that person's health, that person will bring it up to me. And what I say to people who argue that is they're missing the point. <laughs> mm. As healthcare providers, we never say, if your weight is important to your health, you will ask to be weighed. If your smoking status is important to your health, you will bring that up with your healthcare provider. Mm. These are all variables that are risk factors for certain health conditions Mm -hmm. and relevant in how your treatment providers think about how often they should do certain screenings, understanding what kinds of social supports are important to you and who's in your life. Your sexual orientation and gender identity is important to your health. Mm-hmm. And so healthcare, the onus is really on healthcare providers to be normalizing this conversation. Mm-hmm. And that is particularly hard given the context of LGBTQ plus people in the military. And so it becomes a little more complicated <laughs> Because of policies like Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the Transgender Military Service Ban, you know, people are reluctant to talk about this. They want to know how is this information relevant? 
And as healthcare providers, it's our job to explain that to patients Mm -hmm. and make that set the stage so that they know why am I asking this information? How is it relevant for their healthcare? How am I going to enter this data into their medical record or not based on what their preferences are? Mm -hmm. And then begin to create a culture where the patient can talk to you about what's going on in their world. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm nodding violently. Yes. yes, yes. (laughs) And we can't expect our patients to be all up in the peer reviewed literature about, you know, (laughs) uh, what they are at risk for. Right. Right. That's our job as providers. And I will speak for myself as a psychologist that in particular, mental health providers, psychologists, psychiatrists, our professions have participated in the marginalization of LGBTQ plus identities. Oh, that's we hard to have, hear, but yes. Oh, <laughs> it's true though. Yes. Um, our diagnostic and statistical manual are essentially uh, what we lovingly call our Bible of diagnoses. That has included homosexuality as recently as 1973. We currently have gender dysphoria as a mental health diagnosis. So we absolutely are contributing to the marginalization of people with sexual orientations and gender identities that are other than straight and cisgender. Mm -hmm. Right. So both existing in the behavioral health world as a provider and existing in the military system, that's two institutions that have actively been involved in discrimination against this community. Exactly. And so that to me says we have a double responsibility to make the space a safe place to talk about things that are scary, as we often do in psychology and psychiatry. That's sort of our bread and butter. So we need to acknowledge that we have contributed to the harms done to the LGBTQ plus community and work to change the system by regularly having these conversations with our patients and doing so in an affirming way, in a validating way. There are no right or wrong answers to the questions about sexual orientation and gender identity. Hmm. Um, Say more about that. Remembering. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) You know, sometimes people say that their gender identity might be gender fluid. And in a system like the military, where your DEERS marker either has an M or an F, Mm -hmm. that can be complicated, right? And so the onus is on the healthcare provider to understand what gender fluid means for that person that they're treating Mm -hmm. and how are they going to support that identity, not you need to pick between M or F, right? Mm Right. And that's what I meant. Yes. Yes. And I also, I would, it's kind of depressing to talk about, but I do think it's important to just say explicitly, and you are the exact person to answer this question. (laughs) Can you tell us some of the mental health conditions that this community is at higher risk for? Well, the truth is we don't know the scope because the Department of Defense and VA 
neither one collects sexual orientation and gender identity data. Mm. So what we know is based on a handful of studies, more than a handful at this point. But the truth is we don't have system level data to really know exactly what all the disparities are. Mm -hmm. What we do know is that people who experience marginalization have negative effects from that. So it's Mm -hmm. not the identity itself. It's that that person has been marginalized, discriminated against, stigmatized, sometimes even traumatized. There's been violence perpetrated against them. Those are the things that put people at increased risk for health Mm. problems. Mm -hmm. And so in what we see are the long-lasting effects of that through certain kinds of cancers, We see the long-lasting effects of that in higher rates of depression. Sometimes we see that in higher rates of substance use. Sometimes we see that in higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder. Sometimes we see that in higher rates of suicidality. Mm -hmm. But the truth is we don't know all the answers. We're still looking Mm-hmm. <laughs> and once our systems do a better job of collecting sexual orientation and gender identity routinely, we'll be able to say more about military folks and what the actual disparities are instead of just looking at a handful of studies mm-hmm. of um, folks who've volunteered to be part of a research study. Mm-hmm. And the stigma runs so deep. I mean, even the fact mm-hmm. that we don't collect this demographic information is very telling. I, you know, I was putting together randomized controlled trial packet for the IRB, and I really wanted to collect LGBT. My, my study has nothing to do with sexual orientation I think explicitly, but of course, as a demographic variable, I wanted to collect it. And I was told, mm-hmm. no, I was told, you know, <laughs> you're going to have to do a whole memo about why you're collecting this. Here's all the reasons you're not allowed to. It's going to take a year and a mm-hmm. half to hear back. And I was like, oh, gosh, OK, never mind. But me of all people <laughs> should, you know, I, I don't yeah. know that any that uh, that we are able to really garner more information if we're handicapped in terms of even asking the question in the military community. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And unfortunately, you know, I will just say that is one way of looking at that is that, you know, the military is trying to protect people who have marginalized identities. That's one view. Okay. The flip side of that coin is that if we don't collect the information, we'll never truly know the extent of the disparities and where we need to target interventions. And so it just further marginalizes those populations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not necessarily an either or. Both those things can be true. But how do we shift the culture, right? Mm -hmm. So that it isn't, so that people don't need to be protected from revealing their sexual orientation and gender identity. I think we're working toward that in the VA, and Mm -hmm. hopefully that's something that then can move forward in DOD too. Yes. Okay. We have landed back at my initial (laughs) prompt. I'm proud of us. We got there. Yeah. So we got there. We circled back. (laughs) 
please do tell us what the VHA is doing proactively for this, yeah. this community. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of good stuff happening at VA. I'm really proud of the work that we've been able to achieve so far. So in VA, we've had an LGBT health program at central office hmm. in patient care services since 2012. Mm-hmm. And really, the way in which that came to be is because we had a national policy on transgender and gender diverse inclusion about healthcare that was released in 2011. There were some really great things about that 2011 policy on transgender health that helped veterans be assured (laughs) that they could have access to a lot of their transition-related care. Hmm. So transgender veterans since 2011 have been able to access hormone therapy, psychotherapy that's gender-affirming. They can access speech-language pathologists that are trained in uh, vocal and communication strategies. And we have feminizing spectrum and masculinizing spectrum training. And we have prosthetic support. We have fertility evaluations, all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are gaps as well. The 2011 policy, unfortunately, did not tackle the issue of our medical benefits package having gender alterations as an exclusion. And can so what it did, can you explain yeah. that one? <laughs> yeah, so all health insurance, DOD2, we all have medical benefits package. It's essentially what's covered care. And then mm-hmm. in there is also a description of what's not covered in your health care. And in VA, right at the moment, in June 2021, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, the words gender alterations are listed as excluded care in our medical benefits package. Um, So our policy that we released in 2021 just defined those two words as narrowly as we could to mean surgical interventions for transition purposes. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, we were able to offer all the other care that we do offer. Unfortunately, that leaves us with a huge gap in the spectrum of transition-related care, and that's a problem that we need to overcome. Um, so, for those yeah. listening who say, "I am very and I am an inclusive provider, absolutely," but I don't think that taxpayers should be paying for gender-related surgeries. What is mm-hmm. your response to that? So, the current medical benefits package would say. That's fine. We don't pay for that. (laughs) But what I would say going forward is if we don't pay for comprehensive, coordinated health care, we are inevitably spending more because someone who isn't having their care delivered in a coordinated and supportive way is going to end up with more health problems. They're going to have increased gender dysphoria, increased depression, maybe start using substances to help themselves cope with this experience or start to feel suicidal and need to be admitted so that they don't hurt themselves because they they aren't happy in their own bodies. Mm -hmm. And so in the end, the taxpayers are likely spending more on transition-related care than we would if we just 
offered straightforward, affirming care that's comprehensive. Boy, didn't you just describe all of my gender diverse patients? You absolutely did. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that policy in 2011 was very, it was pretty cutting edge at the time, but now we're super behind. We need to be doing a better job of um, comprehensive care. Mm -hmm. But it was also the launch pad for the LGBT health program because, mm -hmm. of course, once that policy came out and we started educating people about all the new services that we needed to make sure were available across the board, people started asking us questions about folks who identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual also. And keep in mind, this was right around the time that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. Mm -hmm. So that's that, and so, of course, those of us who were doing the educating were happy to add that in too and set up this new program. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, we've really sort of expanded what we've been able to provide, including we have a nationwide transgender e consultation program. So, for providers out there who are working in the VA healthcare system, if you're treating a transgender or gender diverse veteran and you have questions about hormone dosing or, you know, making sure that something about your treatment plan is right on point, making sure that you're not missing anything, you can submit a consult to our national team if your veteran agrees to it. Mm -hmm. And you'll get a review of the veteran's chart by our expert teams who then will answer your questions through the veteran's chart. So the veteran will be able to see through their chart what the experts are recommending in terms of that treatment planning question. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty exciting. And we've been able to consult on, I think we're up to 2,000 consults that we've completed nice. uh, within the VA across the country. We also in VA have trained 900 providers through an online, not online, a virtual mm -hmm. <laughs> didactic program. So we had classes of people essentially on Zoom who attended a course and um, learned about transgender and gender diverse care. There were several classes and then they submitted questions through that system. So we had, so we've trained 900 people around the country, all different disciplines, hmm. every region of the country. We even had a few DOD providers who joined us yes. um, because the issues are, can be similar. Mm -hmm. We have lots of on-demand courses, so I'm sure DOD has this system of online learning, uh, like a, a website where you all have to go to do your mandatory trainings and so forth. Oh, do, um, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. VA has one <laughs> of those, too. <laughs> and so we've created courses for the online training system. But what's great about folks who are listening to this um, podcast is that our trainings are also publicly available. So there is a training website called VHA Train. Mm -hmm. So VHA, like Veterans Health Administration, and then Train as in training, T-R-A-I-N. And if you go to vhatrain.org, you can create an account for free and take all the trainings that you want and get continuing education credits. Mm -hmm. And we have just, um, we revamped our transgender trainings so that there are 12 courses now, all 20 minutes or less. 
because we know time is precious. Hmm. And so folks, anyone out in the world can take those classes that you don't even have to be a provider. You can just sign up and take the class because you're interested. Wow. You just said that we have yeah. access to free CEUs in yeah. brief training on interesting topics. <laughs> yes. So. And we have eight new trainings on LGB veteran care that are currently in the process of getting continuing education credits attached to them. So they'll be coming to VHA train soon. So lots of great free training that is specific to LGBTQ plus veterans and I think therefore also relevant to military folks too. Yes. And I really like how you're talking about this movement, I'll call it, on a systems level. You're talking about a coordinated effort to ensure that this population is cared for versus a patchwork kind of, I just happened to, <laughs> there just happens mm-hmm. to be a, you know, a provider who's knowledgeable about this topic in this one city. Or right. Um, and I, right. I exactly. That's, yeah. That's what I personally would argue that's what the DOD could work towards, hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah. Well, one way that might be helpful to DOD, something that we've found to be incredibly helpful, it gets to this thing that you're saying about, you know, the local culture and sort of making sure you know who knows the stuff you need to get the care that you need. Uh In VA, Every VA hospital has an LGBT veteran care coordinator, and this person is sort of the boots on the ground person that the veteran or their family member can go to to ask questions, to make sure that they get connected with providers who are affirming, which hopefully isn't as high a hurdle as it used to be since Mm we really have been, you know, pushing for that. And also there's someone to go to who is a designated safe person Mm -hmm. if there are problems that are Mm -hmm. encountered. I mean, I would love to say that discrimination doesn't happen ever at VA, but, you know, I know that's not true because VA is a massive system. And of course, people are people and mistakes happen, but there needs to be someone to go to to report these problems. And of course, we have folks whose job it is to patient advocates who are supposed to take complaints, and they do. But sometimes it's helpful to have someone like an LGBT veteran care coordinator with you, someone to have your back and say, yeah, this is a problem if someone is misgendering a veteran or if someone is assuming that this veteran is straight, you know, that's a problem. We need to get some training for that provider. So knowing that there's an LGBT veteran care coordinator, in addition to the patient advocates out there at VAs, I think it it can be helpful for folks to know about. And what year about would you say these care coordinators were disseminated? So this program's been in existence since 2016. So not a ton of time. Initially, these were 
volunteer. So these are people who are currently still volunteers. So these are people who have a VA job at the facility Mm. and they have volunteered to do this job in addition to their regular job. Mm-hmm. Um, they do have a little bit of time that gets set aside to support them in doing this job. And one of the things that they do with that time that's set aside is they attend our monthly training. So we have trainings for all of our LGBT veteran care coordinators. It's a very active and vibrant community. And I will say that there are so many passionate people out there, VA employees who do this because they want to make a difference. And so they volunteer to do this, which is great. You know what? I have this memory of when I I mentioned I did my social work internship at a VA and um, I have this memory. So this was like 2011, I think. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that there was no LGBT support group at my VA. And I was like, well, that seems wrong. There should definitely be one. So here I am, this idealistic young person. And... (laughs) I email my supervisor and I say, oh, do you know if there's any uh, queer support group? Here's why I would mm-hmm. like to start one. If if not, he walks down the stairs to my office with a dictionary in hand, opens it to the word queer and says, how in the world are you using this word? What a rude word for you to use. Don't ever use oh. that in a government computer and in, or in an email <laughs> ever again. And I was just horrified because here I am coming yeah. from, you know, a social work program and like a very yeah. inclusive university before that. I was just, yeah. I felt very quieted and put mm-hmm. in my place. So it brings mm. me great personal joy to know that only a few years after that, yeah. VAs were uh, open, kind of given the official opening to, in fact, have these kinds of support groups. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I mentioned the 2011 transgender policy. The, it was 2014 when we had a uh, policy for LGB and related identities. So other minoritized sexual orientations. I will say there's been a ton of discussion within the VA about the ter- the identity queer and I think I'm ho- I'm going to take the high road here <laughs> and assume that your supervisor meant well when Absolutely. they were correcting you Absolutely. um and say you know, for sure, we know that there are generational differences in reactions to that word queer. So I am in my 50s and I am right on the cusp of those generations. So I remember growing up when queer was absolutely a derogatory term. And we do have a lot of veterans older veterans who have a very strong negative reaction to that word. And also we have a lot of younger veterans who very much have reclaimed that word and identify with that word and love being, you know, identifying as queer. And so we need to sort of hold both those perspectives at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. The one thing I really remember saying over and over again in that encounter that caught me so off guard was mm. it's a generational thing. It's a generational right. thing. 
Yeah. Um, and let me also apologize on behalf of the VA because you should never feel silenced when you're bringing up a concern as a VA employee. So let me also apologize on behalf of the VA. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so you mentioned, I, I want to ask you one final question. You mentioned the vibrancy, vibrancy? Uh, vibrant mm-hmm. that your care coordinators bring to these meetings. And I also really mm-hmm. get your joy and enthusiasm in talking about this. Tell me more about what motivates you to keep going in this kind of politicized, sometime disheartening topic. Yeah. You know, I feel very lucky that I get to do what I do. Um, it's not every day that you can wake up and feel like you made a difference. Hmm. And yesterday I woke up and Secretary McDonough, who oversees all of VA, had put out on all of his social media posts about Pride Month and how everyone is welcome at VA, including Hmm. veterans with LGBTQ plus identities. And then Dr. Stone, who is the head of the healthcare branch of the VA, put out an all-employee message about the history of Pride wow. and how important Pride Month is, and that you know he's so proud of our LGBTQ plus employees and veterans, wow. and that everyone is welcome. And then the White House put out their announcement. It really feels like a whole new day. It's very different than when I started 20 years ago. And so seeing that change, even in my time at the VA, is exactly what keeps me going. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you've played a part in you know, all these changes. Yeah. And knowing that there are LGBT support groups at most facilities at this point, and, you know, we have a lot of great programs, things that I haven't even talked about. We have a nationwide vocal coaching program, wow. which is especially important for rural veterans. Mm. So, you know, if you're in a very small town and the VA doesn't have a speech language pathologist who can help you with your goals in communication, you know, normally when a VA doesn't have a certain kind of care, we send it out to the community and we pay for it in the community. But those communities don't have that specialization either. Right. Oh, good. So point. now, yeah. So now, thanks to the Office of Rural Health in VA, we have been able to develop a nationwide vocal coaching program that happens through telehealth. So the veteran can be in a very small rural place and they can connect with a trained speech language pathologist over the computer or their phone or a laptop. If they don't have internet, which sometimes happens in rural places, we send them an internet-enabled laptop Hmm. Um, not laptop, iPad, (laughs) Um, so that they can connect with the provider. So I'm very proud of that program. Mm -hmm. And even after all of what we've said now, I know that there are going to be LGBT-identified folks out there who still feel suspicious of coming to the VA. I know it. Mm. I've felt that suspicion myself as a member of the community going for healthcare and wanting to sort of get some outside validation before I reveal my identity. Yes. And so I will also mention that VA healthcare 
VA hospitals also participate in the Human Rights Campaign Healthcare Equality Index. Hmm. So for those of you who don't know, that is, you may have seen the symbol. It's like um, a yellow equal sign on a blue background. That's their logo for equality. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the Healthcare Equality Index, it's an outside vetting of how that particular hospital does in terms of responsiveness to LGBT veterans and also employees. So in order to earn leadership status, they have to answer a ton of questions. There has to be a ton of training that happens before they can call themselves a leader in LGBT health. Hmm. So that's at least another, so you don't have to take my word for it. Look for the healthcare quality index validation of the hospital near you. So if you have choices between places to go, look to see who has earned the HEI leadership status. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you'll be surprised to see how many VAs are among them. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, all of the active duty LGBT people we see now will become LGBT veterans. So it, <laughs> That's right. it brings me comfort to know that if they do choose to seek care at the VHA, that they will be in good hands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for providers out there who are doing this work in the community, reach out to your LGBT veteran care coordinators at the VAs. I'm sure they would love to hear from you. Maybe collaborate on Pride Month activities or LGBT health awareness activities in March. I'm, I'm sure there are going to be places where you all can work together. That's such a good point. Yes. And where can we find more information about all the work that you've done? So if you want to go to the uh, VA LGBT health program, you can just Google LGBT veteran. Let me see what comes up when I Google that. It is the patient care services website, and you can find all of our policies, all of this information about our non-discrimination policies where we explicitly say sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression are protected categories. Mm -hmm. And you can find really all the information that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So if you just put in LGBT veterans and click on the one that says that's uh, www.patientcare.va.gov and then it's backslash LGBT. Thank you. And I also see that you co-edited a book called Adult Transgender Care, an Interdisciplinary Approach to Training Mental Health Professionals. I did. Yeah. Sounds very proud of that book. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. What a treat. I'm so grateful that you were here. If there was anybody I would have wanted to talk about this topic, it's with you. So thank you so much (laughs) for being here. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I just want to mention that that website, the patient care services website, you can also find the contact information for your LGBT veteran care coordinator on there. Just Go to the right-hand side of the page and click facilities that have LGBT programs, and you can look up your facility by state. Hmm. So easy. Very few barriers to getting good quality care. That's what I'm hearing. That's the goal. And you can contact us from that website as well. Excellent. Thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs>